so we'll we'll actually flip off the video for bandwidth's sake, uh, which is actually. I was hoping to show off my my hoon shirt. But oh, I was gonna, there you uh, go. Nice, nice. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. Welcome, everybody, to the latest, greatest episode of the Network Age. I'm Bichel Ritson, here, as usual, with my co-hosts, Nilrun Mardux and Timlik Miptev. And today, we have an extra special guest, Lane Reddig, a.k.a. Hockfer Modlex, uh, here to join us and talk all things crypto and Ethereum and Urbit. Hockfer, how are you doing today? Doing pretty well. Yeah, really excited to be here. Uh, this is the first, like, Martian podcast I've done. So that's like first time's always extra exciting. Thanks for having me. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Make sure you keep your um, your oxygen mask on as we, <laughs> we go through this. And I, I think that's a, a, a great place to start because this, uh, you know, is part of your transition into into Martian world. You, you told us before we started recording that you've been getting deeper and deeper into Urbit. And I think that's a, um, a good place to to start and say, like, how did you, what is your crypto journey like? I know you used to um, be on the Ethereum Foundation. How did, how did you get where you are today? Why are we talking to you, Hawkfer? Why are you talking to me? I've been wondering <laughs> this all day myself. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay, I'll try to keep this brief. So um, I am, first and foremost, a software developer. I've, that's like the common thread. I've done that now. Uh, I'm old enough to have, you know, had, a few stages to my career. I, I guess I'd say that my CV is like more than one page by now. Uh, and, and I only say that because um, like a lot of my colleagues and collaborators in crypto land, and I guess in Urbit as well, uh, are just like like painfully young and, and haven't done a whole lot of things before. So yeah, I uh, feel that also. <laughs> right. So and, and I, yeah, I, I, I was called like the the uh, crypto boomer grandpa on my Ethereum Foundation <laughs> team where, you know, and I said, this is, you know, as someone who is in his like, the latter half of my 30s, and, and just to put things in perspective, we had a 15-year-old on our team uh, for a while. So oh, you know, uh, those of us who are in our 30s really are like the, the boomers. That actually sums it up. Yeah, whenever whenever I see some of your like takes on Twitter, the ones that I like don't agree with, I actually now know what to slot them in because it actually is kind of like crypto boomer, get off my lawn kind of <laughs> takes. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, this is, which is funny because I think I'm probably just slightly older than you. Like, I just turned yeah. 39. Um, but I think I'm just very immature. So, you know, yeah, congratulations. A, I, I, feel, I feel the same thing. When we were in uh, Lisbon last week for ECC, uh, for ETH, um, Lisbon and Starknet CC. Uh, we walked into the um, like Starkware hacker house, and it was like <laughs> nine seventeen-year-olds, uh, French seventeen-year-olds, all eating gummies and chips, just like you know, <laughs> hacking away. And I was like, "Oh my god, yeah. I'm I am out of place." That that like pretty well sums up my experience uh, working, you know, in the Ethereum space and at the Ethereum Foundation for a couple of years. Like like hacker houses with nineteen to seventeen year olds, seventeen to nineteen year olds eating gummies and. <laughs> <laughs> and and so yeah just like to kind of take it up take it up to now in those like you know in the sort of the most recent stages of your career what's been what's been going on for the last let's say two three years i, I still want to share a little bit about kind of the like how i landed here in the first place because i i, I mm. do think that people's quote-unquote rabbit hole mm. stories are like it's actually my favorite thing to ask people about in this space um so this came up at assembly this year someone mentioned that like most of us in urbit actually had at least two touch points until like really stuck. Uh, and so I feel like herbiters in particular tend to have like, like two rabbit hole stories. Uh, so, so anyway, very, very, very briefly, um, as I said, I'm a software developer, you know, I had a career in, I guess we have a word for this now in TradFi. So I was in traditional finance for a few years. Um, I worked for a hedge fund in New York and in Hong Kong doing hedge fundy technology type things. It was never like deeply fulfilling. And I, I felt like a kind of a values misalignment over time. And I, I didn't, it didn't make, I, how do I put it? I didn't have the vocabulary to, to describe or really understand it at the time. And I think it was like getting into the crypto space that, that gave me uh, the, the lexicon that I was missing to like understand why that values alignment, misalignment existed in the first place. And like that, understand that, that there are like better, uh, more values aligned kind of communities and, and, and possibilities out there. Um, so went back to school. During grad school, so I went to business school, I started a um, healthcare technology startup and I worked on that for a few years. Uh, and this is now 2015, 2016, around that time we sold the startup and I had been very, very heads down in like focused founder mode. And, um, and then finally, 
uh, kind of emerged from that around that time and like discovered Bitcoin in a meaningful way and discovered Ethereum. And really it was like someone sitting down and explaining the concept of a smart contract to me um, that like just blew my mind, right? I just had to stare at a wall for 30 minutes and like let the pieces kind of come together. Um, I, I just felt that this is a very powerful idea that would have like massive implications on, on human society, right? To, to be quite frank. Um, yeah, and, and just kind of rapidly descended down the kind of crypto Ethereum rabbit hole from there. You know, I attended DevCon 3 in 2017. It's kind of crazy. This is five years ago now. Mm -hmm. As a volunteer, like met, you know, all the Ethereum insiders. There weren't that many of them at the time. Um, joined the foundation in late 2017 and then spent the next couple of years working as a core developer, you know, hands on on the VM layer in particular. And so this begins to get a little bit into like what excites me about um, about Urbit. Uh, but, but also, as you guys know, like very hands on with governance and, and sort of the social side of Ethereum and just sort of advocacy more generally. Uh, that's kind of my crypto rabbit hole story. And I can tell the, the urban story as well, but uh, let me pause there first. <laughs> uh, no, I think we should just go directly to the urban one at that point. And just like, cause I guess if I give my own, which I've probably given before was like getting into ETH around the same time. Uh, I was doing a lot of programming in it in, you know, early through late, like 2017. And I encountered Urbit at that time. I think, um, yeah, I hadn't really encountered encountered it prior. I saw it sort of out there. And my initial reaction that sort of stuck for a few years was, oh, this is pretty cool, but I think we can basically do this uh, with Ethereum. Um, I, I didn't, I, I sort of was too naive to understand the scaling. This isn't even a knock on ETH. It's just like the scaling limitations of doing stuff in state on, you know, a public blockchain. And I, so that, that sort of, you know, I didn't circle back to Urban until about two years after that when those limitations were fairly clear. So I'm interested in your case at what point in that cycle you found Urban and how. Yeah, no, I, that's that's actually really exciting to hear you say that. I um, knew we kind of had some overlap in our in our backgrounds, but I didn't realize uh, how, how much that was the case. So just very, very briefly, so I, I wanted to mention is important. So um, having it on the record, right? So I did leave the Ethereum Foundation in 2019, and I've been kind of like peripherally involved in the Ethereum ecosystem since then. Like the nice thing about a project like Ethereum or Urbit for that matter is that it's not a company per se. And, um, you know, like you can be involved in, in many different capacities. And so I've kind of like recently been more involved in Ethereum again, which is kind of nice doing things like, um, you know, running validators and just participating in that community. Um, what else? So I, I think you asked earlier, like why I had kind of parted ways with Ethereum. So this, the, the short version of the story is that like, when I got involved with Ethereum in 2017, it was already a very mature project. And um, I, I wanted to experience the full life cycle. Like I'm just a zero to one type guy. Uh, mm. And I wanted to like really have my hands in the guts of the protocol from like day zero. And so I, um, in 2019, joined a project called Space Mesh. And so I've been working now for the past two years, sorry, the past, oh boy, three and a half years, I think, um, <laughs> on, yeah, on, on building a alternative vision for a smart contract platform. I know we're, we're focused on Urban in this conversation, so let me pivot to Urban now. We can, we can come back and talk more about Space Mesh if it's interesting. And I think it may be interesting specifically in the ways that it intersects a bit with Ukbar and with, with Urban and some of the mm -hmm. kind of smart contract Definitely. three stuff. Definitely. But, but, but pivoting to Urban. So, you know, I met Galen around 2017. I was very active in a crypto co-working community that I co-founded in, in New York called Crypto NYC. And, and Galen very kindly came to speak about Urban around that time. You know, some of the earlier fundraising was happening around that time. And it planted a seed, you know, I was like, oh, this is really interesting. This is really different. It's really novel. But, but Tim, coming back to what you said a moment ago, I had that same thought. I was like, yeah, <laughs> but, you know, Ethereum is more exciting and Ethereum can do this. Ethereum has a Turing complete virtual machine. Ethereum also has money, right? Like, what's the point of Urbit? And, um, and so I kind of followed it, not super closely in kind of 2017, 2018. And for me, it was, I always say it's like, so, so I, I said before, you kind of need two touch points, right? So for me, the second touch point was just circling back to Urbit and, and, and understanding it from first principles. And in particular, understanding that like Ethereum doesn't solve a lot of the problems that exist in software and is really an incomplete manifestation of the Web3 vision. And, and Urbit is a much more complete manifestation of it. And so I kind of got got sucked back in, so to speak, in 2019, 2020, um, you know, helped out a little bit with things like grants and some of the Urban Foundation stuff. And it's it's just been like super exciting to um, attend events like Assembly last year and this year and to see the ecosystem like really take off recently. Cool. And then, so, and I intersected you with that point. I mean, for our listeners, I guess we should give context that uh, at that time I was working on, you know, just general Urbit programming and working on writing what the initial version of the Bitcoin wallet. And I think did the dev call with you at that time and some right. like, you know, some other stuff. 
And which is, which is funny given that like, I think I've sort of then come full, full circle where I'm, you know, as much of an urbit maxi as ever, uh, you know, coming from that place of, oh, Ethereum can do this, but I've now circled back to like really, really wanting a strong programmable settlement layer. And so, you know, everything I'm doing is trying to, you know, even expose ETH in that context and like bring it back to it. But what I'm curious about is, you know, just for you post uh, 2020 up until I think recently, maybe this in this September's assembly, what was your ongoing relationship to what was happening in urbit? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I have kind of come in and out of Urbit over the past few years. I mean, I guess you got a sense of that from the story I shared a moment ago. And mm -hmm. it's like, I'm trying to describe what this pattern would look like. It's kind of like if you, I mean, this is this is the first thing that came to mind. It's not perfect. But if you like take a rock and you try to skim a rock across a lake, right? You know how like you have this initial balance. If, if you do it well, if you do it right, you know, there's this initial touch. And then it travels some distance and then there's another touch. And the pattern is that those touches become more and more frequent over time until eventually the rock like sinks into the lake. So <laughs> I'm torturing the metaphor here, but I feel like I'm like halfway on this like rock skipping journey into urban where I like <laughs> mm -hmm. touched it initially and I was like, oh, what's this? And then I kind of like pieced out and did other things. And then I came back a few months later and I was like, oh, this is even more interesting. And the touch points have gotten more and more frequent. And I think for me, the tipping point was probably assembly last year. And, okay. and you may recall, you know, as I was having these conversations with, with you and with, with Tlan and, and folks and Josh and other folks, you know, kind of circa, let's say early to mid 2020, my point was that it's like culture matters a lot, right? This is sort of one of the lessons I learned in Ethereum. And in particular, culture is very difficult to foster in a, in a healthy, sustainable way, purely online, in a, in a purely digital fashion. And you could call me a boomer here, you can call me old fashioned. Um, Definitely you know, like would. I, this is something that's a thing I for me and at my all. team. I'm, I'm on your side, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and so, yeah, and I, mean, so I was urban pushing. House, so. Oh, well, there you go. That's, that's exactly it. That's the, the, the right manifestation of, of this. So, so I was pushing very hard for something like an assembly, you know, in early 2020. And when it finally sort of came to happen in autumn last year, I was like, this is fucking awesome. Uh, getting people in a room together. And, and it, it, it was the same thing that happened to me in Ethereum in 2017, you know, going to DEF CON and being like, whoa, these people are real. This is really happening. Uh, so I didn't answer your question yet, but it's been a bit of the intersection of the culture on the one hand, that's the part that's like really been exciting for me seeing like what happened with urban NYC and, and some of the cultural touch points there. And, and of course the technology. Yeah. And on this pod, I mean, it's not exactly an urban pod. Uh, it's very much about, you know, the network age, like putting together the pieces of money, technology, uh, ways of like social living, sort of broad forces operating. And so I, as much as I'm like sort of, <laughs> you know, tongue in cheek dismissive of, you know, what, you know, what you see the need for, um, you know, interacting with people live. I actually do think these are things that we're figuring out now in those kind of balances. And so I actually am pretty receptive to seeing like, okay, you know, getting people live in these circumstances does have uh, this really useful effect. So, you know, that it's, it's more of a joke. You know, we talk about this a bit. What is Urbit's killer feature? You know, we talk about Ethereum and Ethereum's killer feature, sort of its composability. To some extent, Urbit is also a composability engine. But the fact that Urbit is like, as a community and as an ecosystem and as a project, like unabashed about leaning into culture and, and even touching upon things like politics, that's, that's really powerful. And that's unique, I think, today among technology projects. And that like really comes out at these in-person events. Yeah, I think I'm really curious about that because I, I'm generally on the same side of you that I, I prefer to experience, I don't know, a lot of the world IRL to, uh, you know, touch, touch grass, as, as they say. But I, I, I'm really curious about what you think the relationship is between culture and technology and how they fuel each other. Because I think at its heart, what is exciting about Urbit is, you know, what is go it is going to enable on a technological level and what that means for people. And I, I agree that there's some sort of reciprocal um, relationship but yeah, I'm curious what you think, how those two forces drive each other. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. That's like a very deep question. I, I definitely find uh, kind of fields like, like philosophy of technology to be endlessly fascinating. I'll just like go, you know, 20 or 30 layers deep on, on like Wikipedia pages and, and study people like Marshall McLuhan, you know, who like really grokked this stuff and like just wrote brilliant things about it decades ago. I, I don't, I don't think I have a super compelling like answer to your question. I, I, the best answer I can give you is that they're like deeply 
intertwined. They're kind of like intrinsically bound in a way. And I think what I'd offer is that um, a lot of technologists tend to be very naive about culture and society and, and politics as well. Of course, those things are all connected. And they um, try to take this like scientific, uh, acultural approach to technology and like, like look at technology as a thing in and of itself that's like not you know, situated within a cultural context. And that's like always a mistake. And so I, I think that's what I, again, I'm just getting at here, things that differentiate Urbit from Ethereum and other projects, technical projects I'm used to. Uh, it's, it's not shy at all about embracing that deep connection. And is it kind of, you mentioned before, you know, working in TradFi that you weren't really like, you didn't feel connected to the values of TradFi. Like what, can you kind of go into what values you are looking for? And like, have you found that in crypto so far? Yeah. Wow. This is, this is sort of the trillion dollar question. Um, so, I mean, in a nutshell, I think the things I was looking for, I, I well, let me be honest. I don't think I knew what I was looking for in the very beginning, but I think it kind mm. of began to make sense over time. So I think, you know, democratization is the one that, that immediately comes to mind. I think that, that this is a thing that technology has generally been really good at, um, you know, probably always, but, but especially in, in recent decades, you know, like, uh, decentralization is very closely tied to that. Right. So, the idea of removing gatekeepers, um, doing things in a permissionless way, right? So this, this concept of permissionless innovation, uh, blogging is a great example of this, right? Uh, that, that it removed the, the, the gatekeeping over content from the hands of the sort of a small number of network TV stations and publishers and things like that. Um, and, you know, we're seeing that play out now with, with things like money and, and hopefully data as well. I think Urban has a role to play there. Uh, I just want to mention as well that there's always a trade-off, always, right? So like, this is mostly good, but it's not completely good. I think a lot of the sort of societal fragmentation we're seeing right now is like also downstream of that decentralization. So decentralization, democratization, um, I try to avoid fairness because as, as, a, as a value, because it's not very well defined. You ask 10 people, you'll get 10 different definitions of fairness or, or justice is another really dangerous word, but um, credible neutrality to, to borrow Vitalik's terminology. I think that's a really powerful kind of value or, or primitive you could call it as well. Uh, the, the second half of your question, you, you asked if, if, if I'm seeing that happen in crypto today, not so much. And so there's a lot of kind of frustration around that, I think. <laughs> uh, it's interesting um, hearing that answer about sort of values right after the discussion of community, because I think hearing you talk, some of the emphasis on, you know, decentralization or what you call democratization actually really makes... Um, community and uh, more important aspect in the development of technology because it's more um, more voices are able to make themselves heard and um, to to influence the direction of the way a technology like Urbit, which is built by, you know, so many people, um, the way it grows. And I think that thinking about what's special about Urbit, I, I, I'm not a dev and as as listeners of the pod. No, I've been forced to, to go to Hoon school. And, um, <laughs> well, I, I was just thinking about like last night I was working on a, on a homework question about, uh, fucking say generators. And I just, I just posted in the, um, you know, the Hoon school chat, like, you know, you up, who's here to just help me. And all these people reached out, um, not, you know, who are not part of the, the, like teaching the teachers or anything just to help because it's fun because everyone in this community is, invested in helping each other learn and there are so many people in the cohort who have never programmed before um and i think that that is a really interesting cultural intersection with technology where this seems to be a place that people are interested in expanding uh technological literacy and giving more people an option to influence technology and respond to it one observation I had recently is that uh, sort of counterintuitively, programming is actually one of the most social activities there are and actually probably one of the activities that does both really well IRL and when it's online does really, really well in kind of like heavy feedback, like chat type things, like where you feel very like... I think, I think that might say something about your understanding of what social <laughs> is. <laughs> no, I, th I think, well, I, like more, more seriously, I think in terms... There's like things that you can learn better or worse online. And I think programming actually like learns really well in a live setting with people to talk to. And mm -hmm. these kind of like, 
you know, heavy feedback chat environments where you're like asking people constantly like questions as part of it is, you know, sort of the closest you can get to that purely digitally. And people seem to like learn to program very, very well in that connection and also like kind of spontaneously generate a lot of social connections in like pursuit of the of the shared goal. And so sort of a throwaway thing, but I think there's probably untapped kind of culture building stuff there for something like Urbit that uh, especially the programming side of it. I think um, this is really interesting. And I think it kind of leads to this related question, which is like, how should education as an institution or educational institutions evolve, you know, in the modern age? And I, I think we could probably all agree. I think it's not controversial to say that education and particularly higher education universities, especially in places like the United States are like kind of broken and kind of tearing apart at the seams and kind of showing their age, you know, recently, you know, uh, Balaji has spoken a lot about this and, and other very smart people. I don't know that we're clear on like what the uh, what the right response is, um, but but I think Tim to your point, like this is part of the reason that universities and, and other types of schools work really well. Uh, it, you know, getting people mm. in a room together is a very powerful thing. Can we recreate that in a purely digital fashion? Can we just have like like on chain credentials? I'm a little skeptical about that. What did you see in ETH in terms of, you mentioned going to these hacker houses with like 17 to 19 year olds um, and feeling a little bit like a boomer. Like how did the, do you think that was a success? Do you think there are lessons that should be applied to other projects like Urbit um, with those hacker houses experience you, that you had in, in ETH? So let me say as a general statement, I think people really misunderstand the success of Ethereum and they kind of misattribute it and they Ooh. tend to glom on to things Let's like- do it. Yeah, they tend to look at things like price action. Um, but that's like downstream of, of the hacker culture. And I think that this is the part that people misunderstand. Like people don't get that Vitalik and, and a handful of other people literally spent years, I mean years, like all the time between 2014. And I, I, would, I don't think you could say Ethereum really began their experience except until 2017. So we're talking about at least three years, full time on the road, like living in airplanes, running meetups around the country, or sorry, around the world, yeah. you know, hosting hacker houses and just just living this hacker culture, this hacker ethos. I think Ethereum, uh, like this is alive and well today in Ethereum. I, I've attended a few ETH hackathons, like some of them are organized by ETH Global, some of them are independent, like ETH Denver in the past few months. And like literally I walk in the room and there are thousands of passionate hackers, many of them young. Uh, the crowd is really, really, really diverse. I was blown away. Um, I was judging at ETH Bogota uh, days ago, right on the sidelines or so just before ETH, um, sorry, just before DevCon. And it was like, yeah. 50% female. Like, I, that's just unheard wow. of in our, in our space. That's, well, that's um, like shocking, honestly. Yeah, especially given yeah. that there's not like huge sort of financial or social pressure done to do that. Aside from, you know, a general sort of good vibe. It's like, you know, it, it's surprising they're able to generate that just from like sort of the sheer power of the culture. It's, it's very cool. Yeah, it's it's sheer power of culture. That's a great way of putting it. And I, I just wanted to make the point. It's like you walk into the room and there's thousands of passionate hackers from around the world. And it's like, what bear market? You know, like, what are you talking about? This is as, as healthy as ever. I want to use that positive thing then for to first expand on it and then get into some like some negatives. So when we're contrasting that, I interacted very heavily in the 2020 to mid 21 period with, you know, the Bitcoin community and especially as it intersects like, you know, Urbit, but also just generally online. And I, I can say without a doubt that it does not have that. And that's a very notable thing that I think is starting to compound positively for ETH and negatively for Bitcoin, really, you know, obviously and observably. So, you know, that's one very strong point on Ethereum's side. But on that note, you mentioned earlier that you have a lot of big frustrations in crypto. And I'm, you know, familiar with what some of them might be from, you know, following you on Twitter and other things. And I'm interested if you can, like, articulate some of those so that we can, you know, interrogate them, push back, see where, you know, we are? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, it's a big topic. I'll do my best to kind of sure, summarize. Just, just, I guess at like the, at the very top level, what sort yeah. of bugs you the most or would you change if you could snap your fingers or, you know, things on those lines? Yeah, I think if I had to boil it down, I would say that a lot of the stuff that's happening in crypto today just feels really soulless to me. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, it's like this animated creature that's like going through the motions and like has all the things it's supposed to have. It has all the bells and whistles and it's moving its arms in the right way and it's dancing in the right way. And it's like, you know, there's like apps and things, but there's just no soul animating it. Um, and, 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 and specifically what's happening here is um, a lot of the more recent projects are aping, you know, 
Ethereum, mm-hmm. right? That's the main one, but to some extent also yep. Bitcoin and, and some other projects that, have, that, are, that are perceived as being successful. And there's a lot of cargo culting going on, a lot of like doing the things that Ethereum does, like, <laughs> like spinning up a foundation is a great example. No one knows why they just do it because <laughs> it's like the thing to do. But but again, just, just to drive the point home here, like it, it has to start with values. It has to, if, if it's, if it's going to be sustainable and, and people see through it, like you may get away in the short term with a pump and dump, which I think a lot of I won't name names. We can if you want to, right? But like a no, lot no, of we, we name, kind of we, name we, we name names. We name okay. we name names on here. Go for, go yeah. for it. I have mine. So, I have, go for it. Give us some names. No, I think I think just picking on stuff happening recently. I think Aptos is is particularly egregious in this way. It's it's just it just, it turns my stomach to be honest. It's it's just so obviously a cash grab. I actually so Aptos, of course, like I think as soon as it was announced, everyone knows exactly what this is. Who's like mildly sophisticated in this space. I thought that given that, you know, in a permissionless environment, you cannot stop people from launching things, especially things they think might be lucrative. I was pretty encouraged by the response to Aptos that just like everyone right. was basically like, the emperor has new clothes. This is right. stupid. Even the more like shit coiny chains were like, this right. is stupid. Come on. And like everything about it was stupid. And no one seemed to have a problem saying that. And I didn't have the feeling I had during, you know, maybe the height of something like AVAX where right. I'll like, you know, talk to VCs who are like, you know, oh, we were just really impressed with AVAX's developer community. And you're like, Dude, it's just some freaking like EVM forks. There's nothing that they're like bribing onto their chain. Like I'm fine naming names, by the way. And like Aptos felt like at least we got to skip that. And I was I was actually kind of proud of crypto in general, like during (laughs) during the AVAX episode. No, really, really. I felt like it was the market was growing in a way that I think if regulation hadn't sort of heavy handed regulation hadn't happened in the ICO era, I'm actually sort of optimistic that there would have been some equilibrium reach there where retail might not have gone for the very dumbest stuff after a while. But interested so, in your opinion. Look, I think you, you, we mentioned that because you mentioned AVAX. Like, if we're going to name names, we have to name EOS. So EOS was like, the oh, first yeah, EOS is. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 amazing what a short memory people have, and I guess okay, people weren't like not not everyone was around in 2018, but mm-hmm. like that was the most egregious of all. And and when I see these other projects, you know, they're just kind of copying the EOS model, and that obviously didn't end well. Yeah, I mean Solana, like we can just we can just go through, like it's yeah. Um, but like the thing that I do come back to with EOS, and it's a little different from AVAX, is that you know if you look at it, the principals on the project, you know, got more money than God, and sort of all made off scot free, right. but. EOS is a joke, and their names are trash, and I don't see anyone trying to raise money by being like, oh, you know what? Dan Larimer's backing me, right? Like, Well, let me, let me just say one thing in response to that. Like, that's the case today, but this was not so obvious in 2018. Like, there were, I remember when we were running, oh, no, no, we no. Were running Crypto NYC, we had a lot of like, seemingly legitimate folk come up and be like, hey, we're part of EOS NYC. We'd like to co-sponsor this thing. And we'd kind of roll our eyes and be like, really? We're Tron. Tron is another obvious example, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, and I, I, th- I guess I, I guess my point is more that at least there's – I do think that my point is more that over time, uh, the reason that it's relevant that today, you know, their names are trash is that if your interest is sort of building up like interesting projects over time and developing a legacy, this isn't really the path to do it because it's like a one-time thing and then doesn't compound. And so at least that gives me a little bit of, you know, a little bit of hope that, yeah, they're going to extract their money and, you know, burn some, you know, burn some capital. But the positive thing over time has been to do the more long, like whatever you think of Ethereum, I think the like the sort of the Vitalik type people, a lot of the core people are very much committed to the project and trying to build that up over time. And I think at least that's getting rewarded to some degree. Uh, Lane, I'm, I'm curious, you know, we've talked about some projects that we think are not exemplifying <laughs> these values <laughs> that, that we, uh, that you're in particular interested in. And you seem to really think that values are part of the core way that crypto delivers um delivers on its on its promise is staying true to those so i I guess i'm curious about i think how do like how does the ecosystem moving forward continue to emphasize you know things like decentralization i you know you hesitate to say justice but those those types of things how do you put those at the center of, of a project and and what are the consequences of that yeah, this is this is this is another one of those key questions. It's great. I'm happy we're talking about the really hard questions. I was kind of hoping you'd, you'd ask. Um, I, you know, I think it's more interesting to look at the projects that that 
are values driven and it's a very, very short list. I mean, so Bitcoin like clearly stands for something. It, it's a short list of things, but it's like clearly articulated and it's kind of clear what it means to be a Bitcoiner, you know, things like sound monetary policy. Ethereum mm -hmm. is a little bit uh, murkier, but like there are, I think a few, like a, a small number of things that kind of like unite Ethereum people or Ethereans. Um, this is something we discuss a lot in Space Mesh, right? What, is, what does it mean to be a Smesher? That's our uh, demonym. Um, like what, what do we stand for as a project? Um, Urbit, I think is, is a good example. Obviously it's crypto adjacent. Uh, you know, I, I think that there's like clear values shared by Urbit folks and, 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 you know, um, they're, they've been pretty clearly articulated. Um, it's a vanishingly short list. Like I really genuinely struggle mm -hmm. to think of, of, of other projects. I think I've like really done a good job of leading with values. I kind of love that, that you're willing to make it such a short list because in my mind, it's that short. Of course, I, I could probably think of some projects built on top of Ethereum that I think are, and like, you know, I think certain like, you know, roll up projects, something like, I, I think, you know, Uniswap is basically like fine and what they're doing. I, I can go through some projects that are doing it, but at a base level, I agree. It's yeah. a really, a really short list. I wanted to, well, I'm definitely, we're definitely going to give you a chance to talk about Space Mesh just because I know you were doing it and it's sort of what's been happening in the gaps between Urbit and I want to hit it. Before we finish this topic though, um, aside from values, what do you think are the things that are, what do you think are the technical things that are holding crypto back from sort of, let's call it either adoption or creating the world you want to live in and that you've, you know, wanted crypto to, uh, to create? Because I think sometimes we get a little bit too into the values yeah. things and there are a lot of really well-intentioned people trying to build stuff and there are technical limits on that. And I'm interested what you see those as right now. Yeah, great question. You know, a couple of years ago, two or three years ago, I used to incessantly bang this drum and say that there are three missing things. And let's see if I can remember. They were mm -hmm. governance, scalability, and usability. Okay. So we can kind mm -hmm. of like, like quickly glance at each of these, right? So like scalability, it's in pretty good shape right now. It's not yeah, that, you know, it's... like the base layer has gotten that much faster. You know, Ethereum has like maybe doubled the the, the block size since then. Um, but, it, you know, obviously it's things like roll-ups and just the fact that we mm -hmm. have many chains here, you know, the gas prices have come down quite a bit on Ethereum at, at the base layer as a result. So I'm not, I'm not worried about scalability at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, governance is always murky and it, it's not strictly a technical thing. It's more of a social thing. I think that we're like speed running uh, through all the issues that, you know, traditional companies and, and TradFi have like found around, around governance. And so like, it's gotten better. Let me just kind of say that for now. I think Ethereum governance is in a better place than it was when, when I mic dropped in 2019. Um, hmm. Usability is the thing I would, I would really emphasize. I think okay. that um, we have a long way to go there. And I think that, that Urbit and, and some of the things being built in Urbit have a lot um, that they can contribute there. Yeah, I mean, probably, you know, my basic thesis, which is that I think crypto from a usability perspective to like make rich applications is kind of screwed without something like Urbit right, as right. like the OS, with, with the exception of what I've, you know, I think since the earliest pods, Bitchell and I have called like, you know, based web two, if you kind of get this like big server project, that's like just willing to make it into a kind of a free for all platform that lets you do lots of stuff programmatically. I just don't really see that on the horizon. Um, yeah. As a general statement, I just want to respond again to your question. I, I actually don't think that there are major technical obstacles. Like the thing that I mentioned hmm. are not technical. They're more social. And this is new, right? Like we're in a new place. Like a few years ago, it was very much the case that like scaling and, and VMs and kind of some of this like low layer, low level technical stuff mm -hmm. was a huge obstacle. It's not so much the case anymore. The technology has really kind of become commoditized. We have a lot of off the shelf things now, like the Cosmos SDK is crushing it, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess, yeah, probably my, I mostly agree with the, with the exception that I think people are seriously underestimating the, you know, maybe both how much work something like Urbit has to do and how necessary that will prove to be. But that's, you know, maybe my own idiosyncratic interpretation. But on that note, can you, can you tell us about um, Space Mesh some just because you've put a lot of your life into it and keeps coming up? Sure. Yeah. Um, excited to, obviously. So, uh, I alluded earlier to the fact that I wanted to kind of experience the full life cycle um, from, from, from day zero um, and, and have a hand in kind of uh, the early phases of the protocol design. So, you know, I think of Ethereum as, sorry, I think of Space Mesh as like kind of an alternative vision for Ethereum, right? So a slightly longer answer to the question of why I left Ethereum was just kind of creative differences and just uh, a difference of opinion around certain things on the Ethereum roadmap, like proof of stake and sharding. 
Uh, I have a particular distaste of proof of stake, and we could also put that on the stack and come back to it if there's time to talk about it. Um, I think we're seeing a lot of that play out right now in you know the the wake of the, the merge and some of the censorship fears that have arisen. But really, um, the, the the thing that we're emphasizing uh, in Space Mesh is decentralization, right? So it is designed from scratch to be very clear, like we have not borrowed any code from anyone. It's not a fork of anything. We've like built this thing completely from scratch, which is a really hard thing to do um, to make it the easiest layer one to participate in as a full participant, which is to say as a miner, right? So you download an app on your computer, you as just an everyday person with you know a modicum of technical ability, you run the app, it takes five minutes to spin the thing up and you mine using hard drive space. So it is a kind of hybrid proof of work, proof of stake system. We call it proof of space time. It uses hard drive space for mining as opposed to those things. And so we, we I call it a hybrid because I think it has the nice properties of both and it avoids some of the big downsides of both proof of work and proof of stake. It's green like proof of stake, but it's permissionless like proof of work. And that's also a hard thing to, to, to build. Um, but that's basically it in a nutshell, right? Like anyone, anywhere mine using commodity grade hardware and the kind of economic model is designed so that you as a home miner cannot be priced out. Uh, to put things in perspective, you know, Bitcoin and Ethereum have on the order of sort of five, six, maybe 7,000 full nodes, and we are targeting a million. So we're targeting like orders of magnitude more decentralization. Yeah, that's that's super interesting, um, especially with you mentioning something like, I don't know, Bitcoin and Ethereum. And I, I'm curious, as someone who has worked on a pretty large project and has now gone into um, startup mode, what whether you view Space Mesh or these other chains as competing with each other, or do you think... Do you think that one of these will win out and we'll all get on that one eventually? Or do you think it's possible to have these different chains coexisting with each other? Um, yeah, just because, you know, you, you understand like Ethereum is it, a lot of people seem to think like Ethereum is it at this point and you're work, putting so much work into a different system. So what is your vision for that future? Yeah, I think and I've thought for a long time the future is going to be very much multi-chain, you know, so... I, I recognize that I just kind of shat on, you know, like pretty much everything that's not Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, and I think that there's a lot of work to be done around values and articulating those values and things. But, you know, it, it would be uh, a mistake to totally write off projects like Solana. Solana is a great example, right? Because there is actually some exciting stuff happening there. And there are, mm -hmm. like, you know, quite, quite a few developers who are like building on top of it. Um, no, I think the future is going to be very, very multi-chain. And, you know, there seems to be some sort of power law at play here. I think it will come to resemble the browser wars or the operating system wars. And so there's never a single win. There's always kind of like three or four and then like a, 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 a three or four substantial players and then kind of a long tail of other ones. So our hope is that Space Mesh is kind of, you know, in, in that top, you know, five or 10, let's say. Mm, yeah. And what's, and just to, you know, finish that thought about it, like, what do you think is going to drive it there? Like, what's the kind of acquisition strategy or thing? Because obviously it's, you know, extremely hard to, overcome the network effects of either Bitcoin or Ethereum and like break into that as like a, you know, so what's, what's your guys like way in that you're trying to go with there? Yeah, this is a really great question. I, I will tell you what it's not. So it's not um, raising hundreds of millions of dollars from like, like huge VC funds. It's not pay to play. It's not like tempting developers to build either the base layer or applications on top of the base layer with fat checks. Uh, it's not, you know, play to earn or any of these other, um, how do I put them? Like strategies mm -hmm. that may work in the short term, but they're not Ponzi like, strategies. Exactly. Yeah, it's not Ponzi-nomics in a nutshell. I think it's we are really totally committed to just doing the hard work and and it, to be honest, like, actually I can do it in a single word because this you guys are orbiters, right? It's the orbit strategy. That's all I need to say. It, it's just it's just really sound engineering mm -hmm. and sound economics. That's really boring and it's going to take hundreds of years to play out. Uh, I think this is like very obvious in in both our engineering as well as in our economic model. Yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, well, especially when you're you're focusing so much on um, building a community. I'm wondering how uh, attached to you as as Smesher uh, as your name because it, uh, it it seems a little bit uh, like lewd to me. I don't know. I, I like uh, <laughs> it's uh, you know some difficult sounds. I don't know. We'll figure we'll figure this all out. We've still got some terminology <laughs> to work out. Our it's actually I'll share with you guys. It's very funny. So our currency is called Smesh. That's like our coin, or I guess maybe SMH, or we're not really sure what the like ticker will be. Mm -hmm. And we were building a custom language, which was also called Smash. 
Um, a lot of this needs to change. Like the terminology is not perfect and we've kind of overloaded terms here. So I think you'll see this stuff rapidly evolve as we approach Genesis, which is happening like in a matter of days. So that's pretty exciting. The other, the other thing I would like to get into a little since it's still on that topic uh, is, yeah, just talk about, you know, proof of stake and Ethereum and your, and your thoughts there. Because I think that's one place where probably we differ substantially. So yeah, it'd be nice to sort of get how you're feeling about it right now. Yeah, no, I'm so excited to talk about proof of stake and, and especially to, to have a, a debate about it. I think that now is a great time to do that because the mm -hmm. merge did just happen and we now have a lot more information than we had. You know, I, I've been having this conversation for years and it was very speculative uh, for a long time. I mean, yes, of course, there are other projects that have been doing proof of stake for a while. Um, but, you know, in a nutshell, the thing that irks me the most, and, and there's a lot, by the way, I've, I've written a lot about this and I've spoken about it and we can kind of include links for people who want to go deeper. But if I had to boil it down to kind of a single thought, it would just be that um, proof of stake is the way the world already works, right? So, so it can be boiled down to shareholders vote. And going back to what I said earlier, like I got into the space to, to, to do something novel and unique and exciting and democratizing. And I think the proof of stake is not that thing. Interesting. So I've, you know, I've heard that one a lot. It's kind of the go-to, you know, laser eye stake, like 69 uh, handle on Twitter type like sure. thing. Oh, I know that guy. And I think I know that guy. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I think the obvious pushback there is that, you know, the thing that in this case shareholders are quote unquote voting on is, well, there, there's two aspects of it. So one is obviously they're just voting on, you know, slot selection, which is a very different thing yeah. from like, you know, rules of the chain. And then I think the other one though, is that like in the other context, when you're talking about some sort of, you know, chain halting liveness attack, uh, you know, essentially people not like sort of uh, not attesting to the proper chain. Um, at that point, it's, Sort of. It's stakeholders voting, but it's actually much more similar to, you know, what Bitcoin would have to do in the event of a large attack um, and much more sort of a UASF type thing. So I guess like my question is, why do you think the analogy holds up when it seems like at kind of a cursory inspection, it has a lot of problems? Like the fact that if we're talking about, you know, shareholders voting and here we're talking about, you know, selecting who like, you know, who will produce the next block or something, those seem very different. And also the the biggest issue that people seem to identify with ETH right now in terms of, you know, censorship concerns arising from, um, you know, just the way that, um, you know, flashbots and MEV boosts currently work would exist both in proof of stake and proof of work. So, yeah, okay, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, yeah, you feel I, free I, to start wherever you want with it. Yeah, so I, let me say two things. So the first is, um, I think that the answer to the question you asked about why I think it's uh, a problem, even though, uh, you know, it appears more complex than that is really that it's just not permissionless. At the end of the day, it's not permissionless and it's not permissionless for multiple reasons, right? Number one, you need someone to sell you that stake initially uh, to become a staker. And it's also a very large minimum stake, right? We're talking about tens of thousands of dollars in the case of Ethereum and Ethereum is better than most mm -hmm. projects. Um, and even more to the point, like the, you know, the, the one of the things that the, the validators are voting on are the, is the incoming set of validators. There's just a circular logic there and it just it just drives me crazy. Um, whereas in Bitcoin, it's really truly, or I should say in, in Nakamoto consensus and proof of work, it's truly meritocratic and anywhere, anytime in a strictly permissionless fashion, anyone can spin up hardware and just, and just start participating. You don't need anyone to vote you in. You don't need to, anyone to sell you coins. Right. So, so that's the thing I think that bothers me and we should talk about the censorship thing too, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to turn this into just a proof of stake thing, but two obvious things that stand out to me there uh, is first that when you're talking about the size of the you know amount of money necessary to enter, there's no feasible way to enter into Bitcoin mining unless you put up like a very large capital expenditure in order to make it worthwhile. And we see that now in terms of how mining has to be concentrated into parties that can do sort of large financing, get access to ASICs. Like, like the capital thing just seems like eh to me. Um, but also when you talk about the circular aspect of, you know, the validators deciding who can become a validator, uh, that also seems to be sort of not quite correct in that, like, not allowing people to become validators is more a matter of, you know, not a, like not getting valid transactions in, which is kind of outside the purview of what people are voting on. I, I don't know. It seems like it, it seems I guess what I'm saying here is that when I see these discussions and I don't want to, you know, bore our readers too much, it <laughs> seems like in a lot of ways, ETH is being held to a very different standard than Bitcoin, where, you know, the capital costs of Bitcoin are just sort of either swept on the rug or kind of, you know, sleight of handed into being a positive. 
Um, and then secondly, like, you know, Bitcoiners are obviously extremely into the fact that the, the sort of source of truth at the end of the day is what nodes accept. And it seems like, you know, in the case of ETH, they're sort of, you know, disregard the, the degree to which that's also a safeguard in that system. You know, Ethereum had this pre right? And mm-hmm. in my days, in the kind of 2018-2019 era, something like about 74% of the circulating ETH at that moment in time had been issued in the pre-mine. And that number has fallen, sure. right? It's something it's on the 50, order of 50-60%. Yeah. yeah, exactly. 50-60%. Um, and the thing is the following. Number one, it will stay that way forever because Ethereum issuance has fallen a lot. And, and you know, it goes, goes negative on mm-hmm. some days. It's, it's disinflationary, you know, on some days and maybe over the long term. And number two, due to proof of stake, that's going to continue to concentrate in a small number of hands. So I, I, I'm not disagreeing with you in, in kind of very practical terms, right? I think that, that the practical limits of proof of stake, you know, have yet to be played out and we'll kind of like witness this in the day, coming days and weeks and months and years. But in a, in a kind of conceptual sense, it just pisses me the fuck off because like I, again, have this background in traditional finance. I worked in a hedge fund. I, you know, was, was in this place where I was helping rich people get richer. That's not, the station I want to be in in my life at this moment. I want to build something that's like really democratizing for for more people. And and again, like all these aspects of proof of stake like really, really bother me. And I think that proof of work has really nice properties that are more permissionless. I think yeah, I think we've sort of taken that one about as far as it can go and kind of where it is is a, you know, we'll sort of, as we've done with seeing whether the merge would go through, now we're sort of onto this part of seeing how that actually plays out. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's an interesting topic and it's, it's interesting to see how much, um, you know, sort of your personal background and preferences inform, you know, how you, like how you view that. It's a values thing. It definitely is. And I think at some point it becomes sort of a, you know, market competitiveness thing in terms of, you know, d- like, do those values turn out to make a difference in terms of adoption uh, one way or another, which will be interesting to see. Yeah. And I think that um, what you're saying about who gets to participate in this system um, relates to something I wanted to ask you about. I saw you tweet You tweeted maybe yesterday, um, about the, the percentage of blocks that are now being held by OFAC-compliant systems and how that leads to, you know, has led to censorship. Um, and that is a, a question that's really in people's minds right now post-Tornado Cash. So I'm uh, wondering if you think that this is going to be a permanent problem with Ethereum or something we actually need to worry about. And um, if so, how, uh, how they deal with it. Yeah, this is probably the most interesting topic in the crypto space right now. So um, just very briefly, by way of context, the Ethereum um, merge happened on September 15th. So we're now kind of a couple months out from that. Uh, and um, and it, the Tornado Cash thing happened shortly before that. Whether that was a coincidence or not can be debated. But uh, the reality is that the latest number that I saw was about 74% of the blocks um, being produced by the validators now are OFAC compliant, which is to say, and, and this has a lot to do, as you as you mentioned, with 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 um, with flashbots and uh, kind of the MBB infrastructure. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm worried. I'm very very worried. Like going back to values, to me, the whole point of this, like, why why are we here if we're not censorship resistant? Like that is of all the values, that's maybe the single most sacred value, and and and, and you have to look at the trend as well. That that trend is trending upward very very quickly. So I. People are talking about it, but I think not enough. We're not doing enough to kind of uh, to, to respond to this. I, I think Bitcoiners are watching this happen to Ethereum, and it's a little bit like watching a slow motion train wreck. Um, and I just want to make one final point here. Tim, I think you said a moment ago that this would have happened kind of regardless of proof of work or proof of stake or the merge. I actually disagree. I think that this is um, in large part a, a, a thing that's inevitable under proof of stake more than under proof of work. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't. Um, yeah, I sort of don't want to turn the podcast into uh, into <laughs> you know a, de- a, a debate back and forth. Since there's there's print there's plenty of content on those lines. I guess Agreed. like I think for our listeners who. Uh, are interested in such things. Obviously, you know, you've talked about it like somewhat. I think you just did a, you know, what Bitcoin uh, did podcast. I, um, you know, probably my most popular Twitter thread I've written is kind of my take on this situation. I've linked it here. So Mitchell can put it in the show notes. Um, That's actually the one that like, you know, ETH reply guys will go to uh, when, you know, people like you post the, (laughs) post the OFAC chart. I think more, more generally, I agree that 
it's an incredibly serious situation. I guess I, because I was following it before, um, you know, the OFAC chart of death started to be really popular. I'm right. somewhat more, I'm somewhat more bullish on the fact, the, the, the degree to which, you know, prominent Ethereum people were paying a lot of attention to it. And like, there's, you know, a road, like a roadmap to handle it. Um, I think flashbots, probably shares some of the blame here and could have handled like could have handled this a lot better um but i think like you know for people who are interested in the topic obviously you know they should check out uh what you've said about it if they look in my thread i linked like pretty extensive resources uh so they you know can kind of see the state of the thinking on it because it's a fairly nuanced topic i guess the tldr is probably you know from your end that people should be paying a lot of attention to this it's the only thing and they're not paying enough and mine would be People should be paying attention to it. It's incredibly important. Uh, and there are tractable, realistic ways to handle it that are on the horizon. But this is what people in crypto should be focusing on right now. And I do, I will give ETH some credit in that I think Bitcoin has somewhat avoided it by not having a really programmable settlement layer that can enable kind of MEV type usage. And so they've sort of been able to, you know, sidestep that and avoid that in a way that even if Space Mesh is really successful, it would have to reckon with. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I think we can kind of leave it on that point that this is mm -hmm. the most interesting thing happening, that it is really important to be paying attention. We should be trying to find ways to mitigate it. I, I'm maybe a little bit less confident than you are that we're going like, <laughs> to find those ways in the, in the, in the short term. But MEV, another huge topic, super interesting, not going away anytime soon. And this is all just going to get more complicated. So pay attention. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I yeah, this is sort of a, a mentality thing. Like it's, I find it very fun to be in a time when stuff is kind of hitting the, like the rubber's hitting the road. Yeah. I was even a little bit happy about Tornado Cash because my biggest fear for crypto in general was that uh, it would be able to kind of just go down the primrose path of like sort of, you know, de quote unquote, decentralized enough uh, and not have to deal with this. So I'm, exci I'm excited that at least we have to deal with hard stuffs like now. Yeah, yeah, this is a huge, this is a huge inflection point for us. I mean, like crypto is, people are starting to set up and pay attention. And when I say people, I mean like nation states. It's like a big deal. Totally. Yeah, you know, our, our Ethereum nerds have uh, really gotten their, their money's worth uh, <laughs> on this one. And You're, I, welcome. Um, You're welcome. Make sure to post... Tim Lux thread. I'm really uh, putting the the bitch in bitchel when my my boss says post my Twitter <laughs> thread to the uh, to the show notes. This here. is this this like <laughs> podcast is a long like Rube Goldberg machine in order to like maximize my engagement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is just um, engagement farming, right? Let's let's admit it. Definitely. <laughs> well, uh, um, Lane Hockfer, uh, I I wanted to um, do a pivot here to some other things that we're interested in. As you are aware, this is the network age podcast and i think one of the things we always want to get to when we're discussing um you know even the nitty-gritty technical granular details of of a particular chain or something is how this impacts a sort of larger vision for the future and what a blockchain empowered um you know global system looks like you know once it once it begins to um develop more and I, I think you, you touched on some of this with even sort of rethinking, like, what our educational institutions look like in this future. So I'm curious if you have any, um, whether they're predictions, hypotheses, or, or worries about a sort of larger network age landscape that is beginning to come into existence. Yeah, uh, exciting topic. And, you know, a lot to say. Um, I like network age as a brand, maybe a little better than network state. Uh, you know, I gave a talk about network, and of course, when I say network state, I'm referring to you know the, the book that Balaji released recently, and just kind of his his work in that area, and the other folks who've carried that torch. Yeah. Um, I gave a talk about the intersection of network states and DAOs a couple weeks ago in Bogota, and one person responded by saying, uh, "This this person is is a is a friend who's an expert in international law." And she said, um, the, the issue, the fallacy of network state is that it necessarily implies the existence of the state in the first place. And the state is just like, mm -hmm. like many of us are very skeptical of the state as a mechanism. Yes. And anyway, I just say, I, you know, I, I actually agree with this. I, I want to discuss this with Balaji and get his take on it. Um, does it have to be a state? You know, um, anyway, network age is a great brand. <laughs> um, so... I'll offer one thing, and, and I, I again just want to preface this by saying that the other folks um, like Balaji have done like, like just orders of magnitude, like deeper thinking and better articulation of this. The thing that I find the most interesting is DAOs in this area, and I think that in many ways the concept of a DAO is a, a bit um, 
kind of like proto network state or, or network age and kind of upstream of that a little bit, right? And in particular, DAOs is the future of work. Uh, someone described this to me as saying the way that construction projects happen or the way that films are made, right? It's not a company. It's not like a single company and everyone's employed over the long term and has benefits and job security and this and that, right? It's like these groups of people who come together in a particular place in a particular time in a very ad hoc fashion. And each of them brings something to the table, right? So in the case of a film, you have the producer, you have the production company, you have the talent, you have the, you know, the actual film crew, you have all the other folks who are involved in the production, the editing, the post-production, the distribution, come together, work very intensely on a thing and then kind of go their separate ways. That model of work, I think, especially in the domain of knowledge work makes a lot of sense. And I think we're kind of moving in that direction. I think that that's an important building block of the network age, whatever that is and whenever it comes to pass. Do you think, like, why do you think that is? Is that because of the shift in what work is? Like, it's no longer this sort of industrial, everything is the same process, you know, building a car. Like, is it because of the work changing or is there some other factor that leads to this sort of DAO framework being superior to, like, the corporation? I think it's, that's a great question. I think it's both. I think there's a push and a pull, right? So I think the, uh, the, the first factor is what you're describing, what you're touching upon, which is that the nature of work is changing and projects are getting more complex um, to the point where you can't have all the expertise needed in-house in a single organization to do a thing like building a complex piece of software, building an airplane, or yeah, work is just getting more complex and, and things are moving faster. But there's also a push factor as well, which is that you know if you go back kind of to, to Coase and the theory of the firm, those, um, what are they called, the transaction costs are falling a lot. And so it's actually uh, mm. like firms exist because it's cheaper to do things in-house and keep people in-house and keep people employed and pass information and, and, and money around in-house. Well, that's not so much the case anymore because markets for information and for value are much more liquid and the transaction costs are much lower than they used to be. Mm. So you mentioned people not necessarily being in the same office, for example. Like, do you see this having a really international impact? You mentioned going to DevCon, of course, and how international a lot of the ETH events are. Like, is, is, this, is this something that's going to have a very global effect, or do you think it'll be more isolated to, I don't know, the U.S., where a lot of the devs kind of currently are? Yeah, I, I would turn this around a little bit. I would say that um, when you... So, so crypto is extraordinarily international. I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I said I had a background in traditional finance, and I was in an office in Hong Kong, and, you know, we had offices in five or six countries, and we regularly had calls, you know, among New York and Hong Kong and, and London yep. and places like that. But, like... Crypto is like next level, right? Like I, the team I'm a part of now at Space Mesh, the team I was a part of at EF, I mean, these teams have people in dozens of countries on them. And like in this context of this hyper-globalized work, it's like a next level of globalization. Companies just don't make sense. It's just not at all obvious, like which jurisdiction are you going to incorporate in? How are you going to pay people? Everyone's yeah. struggling with things like benefits and stuff. A DAO is just, a, it's just an internet native, digitally native, you know, global native way of doing things. So it just, it makes more sense. And the future is, I mean, I know we're in, in an era of kind of deglobalization right now, so we could talk about that too, but I still think the long-term future is, is going to be more globalized, I hope. Mm. So you mentioned this issue around like, where do I incorporate? Um, do you think like, I guess, will existing jurisdictions kind of hold this back though? Like force you to incorporate in one of them, for example, or else you're not really, you know, you get, otherwise you don't get limited liability. I think there was a ruling the CFTC recently said that like anyone who's voted in a DAO is like subject to personal liability. Like, do you think jurisdictions are going to be able to kind of kneecap that to some extent? I think we'll see smart jurisdictions and dumb jurisdictions. And I think that the smart <laughs> ones will embrace this stuff. And, you know, people will continue to do what they're doing, which is to act like finance and engage in regulatory arbitrage. And I think that the talent will flow to, I mean, this is a very sovereign individual, you know, hypothesis, but like the talent will flow to the places that embrace this, this future, to be frank. This might be a little bit out of left field, so I'm not sure if you've thought of it, but one thing I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, we think a lot in terms of, you know, where the talent goes, but I've started to think almost of, um, you know, people creating content, people creating companies and software as the supply and ca like investment capital that wants certain programs or content or whatever to exist as the demand and crypto potentially being this, you know, way to kind of almost like to aggregate that and sort of let these capital organisms chase country, uh, sort of, you know, chase that stuff. How, how do you see... I guess, like, um, investing working uh, or, like, you know, that as a driver? And how do you think people will invest in the future? That's a great question. Uh, I'm not an investor. <laughs> oh, interesting. And, okay. You know, 
Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, I do some angel investing here and there. I don't think of myself mm-hmm. as an investor, despite despite having a background in traditional finance. And I think that's just because I think of myself as a builder. And I think those two are somewhat mutually exclusive. It's hard to be good at both. And if I had mm-hmm. to pick, I'm, I'm for now in the builder camp that might change in the future. Um, you know, I guess what I would say is that to the extent that I have done investing both uh, as an LP and, and also as an angel investor, things are still very highly regional. Um, there's mm-hmm. very few funds that like really do a good job of having a global mandate. And so even those that kind of claim to be, you know, I don't have a particular regional mandate and I'm, you know, I'll go anywhere. Um, they really in practice do focus on a very small number of regions. And those regions tend to be North America and kind of Western Europe for, for, I think, obvious reasons. Um, I think it's hard because we need standards, right? I guess that, that's, that's, that's what I would say. That's what's missing right now is like, how do you evaluate, um, the financials or like the team in, in a very different market. And how do you like provide the upside appropriately, like deal with all stuff. But it's, it's really interesting though, because it makes me want to pursue that answer makes me want to pursue that line of thinking, you know, even more because whenever you see that type of inefficiency, like, okay, you know, something that probably shouldn't be regional, like investing in, you know, software content companies is, you know, that immediately leads you to, okay, why? And a lot of the answers are things like this, you know, evaluation, corporate structures, you know, some of the stuff that we're positing could get done away with. That's, yeah. Let me turn the question around. Like, do you think that there should be a fund, let's just say a VC fund, it could be any category of fund, Mm -hmm. that has no mandate whatsoever with respect to, like, industry? Like, would that be a thing? Would that be wise? Um, I don't know with no respect to industry, I could definitely see that there, I think at some point there would not, maybe not should, but will be uh, funds who have, you know, no mandate with respect to region and also just have this broad mandate of like, make productive digital stuff happen more. And that's more what I'm kind of, you know, exploring in terms of what might happen, because I think that's the most you know, underserved thing and where there might be the biggest unlock for, you know, crypto uh, as a, you know, as a thing to go at. I'm asking because I think that like, so I, I think it wouldn't really make sense. And I think the funds that do try to have a, a super broad mandate, like probably struggle. I mean, there's probably data mm-hmm. on this, whereas ones that are like pretty zoomed in on an area where like the, the, the partners, let's say like really have some degree of expertise tend to do better. Um, I, I think this is probably true regionally as well. Just having, you know, lived and worked and studied and done business in a number of countries and a number of regions, they're really, really, really different. Like that may change. Like maybe someday we'll have a, a truly global business culture. And I think crypto is the first time we're beginning to see that start. But it's it's just not the case today that the way projects work in Africa and the way projects work in Asia and the way projects work in, work in North America are the same because they're not. Like there's just so many differences in terms of connections and how business is done and culture and the financial side of things. It, it's, it's very much not the case today. But looking forward, sure, like you could have a huge edge 10, 20, 50 years from now. The reason, the other reason I ask is just that one of the things I've observed the most in Urbit is that one of the things people want to do the most uh, is kind of when they see lots of talented developers in one place and kind of new ground to be carved out is they want to invest and they want to do stuff there. And arguably, you know, we, we've done a lot in Urbit over the last year and that's become like actually this really big use case is people starting companies doing stuff on it or projects. Uh, but it feels like there's some big unlocks there as the primitives improve. So that's like, you know, one thing I'm just keeping my eye out for on the Urbit side that you probably noted when you went to like, you know, this year's assembly as opposed to last is like, you know, sort of how much stuff has kind of grown and how much of that is happening. It's massive. I mean, it, it was it was incredible to be honest. Like it's starting from a low base, um, right? To be fair, there were there were a very small number of things things being kind of independent projects and initiatives built on Urbit in twenty twenty one. There's way more in this year in twenty twenty two in percentage terms. Um, if that growth continues, Urbit's going to be like absolutely massive in a couple more years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exponentials are a bitch. Yeah, right. Yeah, and it, and there was a kind of a funny tweet storm yesterday about uh. I think Wickram Wickram had said like you know I hate Urbit or something. I, <laughs> I saw this. And then, yeah, it was kind of uh, clickbaity, yeah. but uh, it was funny. There was a lot of like pushback. It just like look, you couldn't. There wasn't even software distribution until Assembly One, and now look at Assembly Two and how much has like progressed. But kind of like one thing, Lane, I'm I'm wondering is like you know you mentioned sovereign individual. You kind of mentioned you know reading network state. Kind of as we kind of think about this network aid sovereign individual thesis, like what would you advise people to do at kind of an individual level to help accelerate this or push it forward faster? 
Yeah. Wow. Uh, I mean, I would say start by reading those those two things and, and kind of the the universe of other content that's risen up around them. Um, I think that so so Sovereign Individual is obviously a book. It was published in the eighties, right? So it's like or I think it was I think it was late eighties, maybe early nineties. Um, uh, I think ninety mid nineties. Okay, ninety five. Right. I think. Yeah. But yeah, I, a long I always time remember ago. it being being older than it is. Um, but it's still remarkable for for having kind of you know predicted mm-hmm. Bitcoin and, and certain other phenomenon that we've seen since then. Um, I think network state is a is a fantastic update of that. I mean, it's obviously very much downstream of sovereign individual, um, but but like very up to date. And it's it's you know what it is. It's is it it's a framework, right? It, it's a it's a it's the best thing we have today. It's not perfect for you know we we spoke about one of the reasons why it may not be perfect a moment ago because it implies the existence of the state. Yeah. But it's the best framework I think we have today to kind of get our heads around what's going on, right? So kudos to to Balaji for uh, for for doing that and for sharing that with the world. Um, other than reading those things. It's hard to say. It's still really very early days. I guess I would say to the extent that you are starting something new, right? This is, it's very, very difficult, as I think we'd all agree, to pivot or, or um, evolve an existing kind of centralized, you know, hyper-regional project or company into a global something like a blockchain-based entity or a DAO or something. I mean, some folks like, um, like Shapeshift, Shapeshift are trying this, and, and, and Gitcoin is another one to, to varying degrees of success. Mm-hmm. But to the extent that you're starting something new, seriously consider, right? Ask this question which parts of this need to be embedded in the legacy system, whether that's the financial system, the economic system, the legal system, and which parts of it can be built on Urbit or on Ethereum or on, you know, one of these existing uh, internet native, global native platforms. And I think you'll find that the answer is not everything needs to be deeply embedded in the legacy system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lane, that's a great note to end this on, I think. So we want to thank you for, being here for joining us on the network age it was an absolute pleasure to uh to talk with you and and have you share some of your ideas so um thank you so much and uh to our listeners we will see you next week on the network age thank you guys this has been a lot of fun a lot of great food for thought really appreciate it Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Network Age. It'll really help us to keep getting our ideas out there, getting you know great guests, and giving you what you want if you can just help us with a few things. Uh, subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, give us a good rating if you liked it. You know, Hit that five stars. And our Twitters are in the show notes for me, Bitchell, and Nilrun. So follow us, retweet, promote the show. And we will keep giving you that amazing Network Age content that you love.